Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. NBC's Saturday Night Live ushered in a bold new era of comedy on television, an impact that reverberates to this day. The show also launched the careers of many great comic actors and writers. Alan Zweibel was one of SNL's original writers. Today we'll hear about creating the show's characters and sketches that have had a profound influence on our popular culture. In less than a year, Alan Zweibel went from slicing lox and pastrami in a New York delicatessen to winning an Emmy Award for writing comedy. The story of that remarkable achievement, along with the 40-plus years of an illustrious career that followed, are revealed in his new memoir, Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. He's with us now via Zoom. Alan Zweibel, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, you wanted to be a comedy writer ever since you were a young boy watching the Dick Van Dyke show on TV. It surprised me that you were that specific. Why a comedy writer and not a comedian or comic actor? What what a wonderful question that is. Um, You know something? I think it was part of the DNA that... Ever since I was a little boy, around that time, I discovered uh, writing and I liked sitting down with my words and putting them in an order, see what would make people laugh by the time they got to the end of the line. And when I saw the Dick Van Dyke show, it went, you know, God, he had a really pretty wife and he had (laughs) family and he had a nice house in New Rochelle and he looked like when he was at the office, all he did all day was lie on a couch and joke around with Buddy and Sally. And I looked at my parents. I went, I want to do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but yeah, my, I had no aspirations uh, or dreams of becoming a performer, an actor, a comic, or, or, or any of that. I just thought that um, the writing part was what intrigued me the most. Please tell us about your first step toward that goal, writing for stand-up comedians in the Catskills. 
Well, I had graduated college in 1972, moved back in with my parents. Uh, this was after uh, every law school in the United States told me that, uh, no, 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 become a comedy writer. You don't want to be a lawyer. Their loss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they looked, they sat down with my board scores and said, no, this is a waste of everybody's time. So um, I'm living with my parents in the summer after uh, college graduation. And my mom and dad went to Lake Tahoe and they were at a, a, in a nightclub and they saw a show that the headliner was a guy named Engelbert Humperdinck, if you remember him. I do. And, and the opening act was a Catskill comedian named Morty Gunty. My mom ran into him the next morning at a coffee shop, introduced herself and uh, told him that she had a son who uh, wanted to be a comedy writer. So he gave her his uh, phone number and address. I called them when they got back and I started writing for him. It was $7 a joke. Uh, this, that was the going rate. And I did that for a couple of years while I was working that delicatessen that you just mentioned because it had $7 a joke. It was, it was hardly a living. Well, would you tell the pacemaker joke? Well, I, one, one of the first jokes I had wrote, written for them, for Morty Gunty, was about my uh, grandfather having uh, an electronic pacemaker in his heart, which worked great, except every time he sneezed, the garage door went up. <laughs> um, you know, some of the other Catskill comedians heard uh, Morty Gunty tell that joke. They said, who wrote it? He said, Alan. And, you know, I started getting calls from other comics who worked up there. And I built up a little bit of a stable of uh, comics that I furnished material for. So you spent a couple years writing jokes for these Borscht Belt comics. You even got to hang out at the Friars Club where they gathered as a fraternity. Would you share the story about overhearing Henny young men on the street? Well, the well these, these older comics were idols of mine. I used to see them... When my parents took us to the uh, Catskills on holiday weekends, we, we lived on Long Island, so the Catskills was like a two-hour drive, and we'd go there, and I'd sneak into the nightclubs because I was underage and watch these comics perform. So now, years later, not only am I writing for them, but uh, so many of them hung out at the legendary Friars Club in New York, and there was this... Um, when I, I ultimately became a friar, after I left Saturday Night Live, I um, didn't have an office, you know, I wasn't at the show anymore. So I joined the Friars Club. They had a room upstairs that was like a lounge that I used as an office. And uh, one day I'm walking towards the Friars Club. If you're familiar at all with the geography of New York, the Friars Club is located on East 55th Street between Madison and Park Avenues. And for whatever reason, this particular time of day, there was nobody on the street. I turned onto 55th Street to walk towards the Friars Club. The street was totally empty, which is an important part of this story because out from a doorway in front of me steps Henny Youngman, and he thinks he's alone. He doesn't see me. I'm all the way behind him, and there's nobody else on the street. And Henny crosses 55th Street, walking towards the Friars Club. And as he gets to the other side of the street, he's just about at the curb when a pigeon flutters down and lands at his feet. And uh, without skipping a beat, he looks at the pigeon and says, 
any mail for me. <laughs> Got to understand, he thought he was alone. He didn't have. He didn't know I was there. There was no audience. The man was talking to a bird. That's what fascinated me about these older guys. It was. Uh, it was uh, just a knee-jerk reaction. Whatever the situation was to try to be funny for the sake of being funny. I found them fascinating. One of the first times I went to the Friars Club, I was introduced to an old comedian named Gene Balos. And if you don't remember his name, if you saw a picture of him, you go, oh yeah, I knew who he was. A, a sad sack looking guy with big bags under his eyes. He looked sort of like a beagle in a way. And I was introduced to him and he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I hear you're pretty funny. You know who's also funny? My dentist. And he opens his mouth and out spills about 30 chiclets as if they're his teeth. And I'm, I just started, and this happened maybe 45 years ago. And to this day, I don't know if he walked around with 30 chiclets in his mouth, just hoping that he'd be introduced to somebody or he saw me coming and said, oh, let me put the chiclets in my mouth so maybe I can do the joke. Uh. No matter what, these guys were just about making each other laugh. Well, so there was brilliance you witnessed close up, yet you believed there was something more to comedy that went beyond writing jokes. This was the early 1970s. How was comedy itself changing? Wonderful, wonderful question. Okay, in the 70s, the early 70s, comedy was changing. You know, um, around then, uh, you know, Woodstock had happened in the summer of 69, and uh, it was, uh, Watergate was about to happen in 73, Nixon resigning in 74, and the Catskill guys made little, if no mention of it whatsoever. They were just into, and I don't say this with any sort of, uh, in any derogatory way, it was wife jokes, it was fat jokes, it was suburbia. And it, while it was very funny, I had more things that I, I wanted to say as a 22-year-old. You know, there was marijuana, there was the pill, there was uh, all sorts of uh, a social revolution going on that I was a part of. That was my age group. It was the baby boomers, as if we were the sons and daughters of those guys up in the Catskills. It was like everybody was Alan King's child. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about other things. And there were two clubs in New York City at the time, showcase clubs called the, one was Catch a Rising Star, the other was called The Improvisation. And that's where you can go see Richard Pryor or David Brenner or my good friend Larry David was just starting out. Elaine Boozler was there. Um, you know, Lily Tomlin would stop in, Bette Midler. And these people were more my age and more my sensibility. And in effect, they were the new Catskills, these clubs. You know, the Catskills in its heyday was a breeding ground for those kind of comedians to, uh, it would launch them into careers with television shows and Las Vegas acts. But these these clubs, this is where, uh, this is where the, um, the spirit of George Carlin was, you know, talking <laughs> about what was going on socially. And um, I started hanging out there. And my plan was um, to go on stage and to deliver my jokes uh, with the hopes that uh, a manager or an agent would come in and like the jokes and maybe want to represent me 
uh, so helped me get a job writing television, which is what I wanted to do at the time. And um, I went on stage. I was terrible. I was terrible. If the people liked the jokes, they laughed. But if they didn't like it, I had no sense of performance <laughs> whatsoever, unless you wanted to see a big Jew sweating and stammering. <laughs> I oh, offer I as, a, as a comedian. Uh, but about four months into this uh, experiment of mine, um, Lorne Michaels came into the uh, club, was so unimpressed with my performance, but liked my material. And um, uh, through an agent I had at the time, an interview was uh, arranged for me to talk to him about uh, this new show he was putting together that would premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live. So I went home to my parents' house on Long Island, typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. Two days later, went back to the city, had my meeting with Lorne. Um, I gave him this uh, tome that I had with 1,100 jokes. He opened it. He read the first joke. He nodded. He went very good. Then he closed the book. And I left the book with him because uh, I'm sure he read the rest of them and had a show with the NBC executives. But pulled to this day, and you know, when people have asked him, he would say, yeah, the one joke. He was able to tell he was that smart, the ingenuity, the sensibility. He had hired others based on just a little bit of knowing who they are and what they did and how they thought. And I got a phone call two, three days later that uh, I was hired. Mm. Would you tell the joke that was on oh, that first page. Well, the first page, the first joke, and I strategically, you know, aligned the joke. What would be the, what would grab them? You know, what would be the first one? What would be the other ones on the first page? What would be the ones on the last page, just in case they didn't read <laughs> all the pages in the middle? And the joke that I had written, and to show you how long ago was from the uh, reference points in it, I had said that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10 cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter. <laughs> that was the joke. And it's interesting because when I go on to my uh, speaking engagements, whether it's for corporations or at fundraisers, I do a bunch during the course of the year. And if I speak at a college and I tell my story, now these are 17, 18, 19 year old kids. And when I do that joke, it gets a laugh, but the kids will come up to me afterwards and go, well, why would you lick a stamp? You know, because on the back, <laughs> so that's the shelf life of that joke is, joke is diminishing very, very rapidly. Oh, it's a museum piece, but every bit is funny. Well, even if you were not suited to the role of stand-up, it did bring you in contact with some people who became lifelong friends, such as Richard Lewis, Billy Crystal, and Larry David. Yeah, they were my contemporaries at the club. And even though my tenure there was short-lived, uh, we were um, attracted to each other as friends. We made each other laugh. And in my research for the book, Laugh Lines, Billy wrote the forward to it. Uh, yeah, we started out together. He lived a few towns over from where I lived with my parents on Long Island. He was already married with a child, but he would pick me up every night in his little blue Volkswagen. We'd drive into the city, and on the way home, we would listen to the cassettes. 
and critique each other and give notes on how we were progressing, what joke worked, maybe if you said it this way or that way. And years later, he asked me to collaborate with him on a one-man show that I believe we did in Atlanta called 700 Sundays. Yes. The highlights of my career, uh, not only did I have a great time uh, writing it, and uh, the show was enormously successful. It won a Tony Award, but he was my pal trusting me with his family, putting words into the mouths of relatives who I never met. And that was a big high. I recently written a... Um, uh, a movie with him called Here Today, which stars him and Tiffany Haddish. My friendship with Billy has lasted since the beginning, since 19, I guess I met him in 74. I met Larry David then also, and he continues to be my good buddy. You know, Rob Reiner hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever, and we're doing a TV project together. Now, I had met him at the clubs, but like I said, I met him when he hosted SNL, but it was, these are very long-term relationships. Richard Lewis, the same thing. Today's his birthday, and I just sent him an email. You know, um, we all started out as friends, struggling together. So the attraction was friendship. And yeah, and your memoir is one that's a story of your career, of friendship, and a wonderful love story with your wife, but we'll get to in a moment, I hope. Okay. <laughs> um, would you talk about your first day on the job as a writer for SNL? Well, you know, my background, like I said, was a joke writing, okay? That's what I did, that's what I knew. And uh, the very first day of SNL was July 7th, 1975. I guess it was probably after the 4th of July weekend, which would be, oh God, it would be exactly 45 years. You know, as a kid, my, uh, I used to run errands for my father who manufactured jewelry. And his place of business was on 52nd between 5th and Madison. And when I'd run errands, no matter where the errand had to go, I, by way of Rockefeller Center, um, the RCA building it was called at the time, uh, 30, Rock, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, and upstairs, I you know go into the lobby and I want to see people who were working upstairs. Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show, and uh, there was a show in the '60s called "That Was the Week That Was," and there were people in that building doing what I wanted to do someday. So now it's July 7th, 1975, and I'm reporting to that building as the TV comedy writer. That little boy's dream came true. And I was just overwhelmed by it. And then when we met in Lorne Michaels' office to meet each other and talk about the show for the first time, I looked around and I saw John Belushi and Lorraine Newman and Dan Aykroyd and Al Franken. And there was a different kind of training there. Their comedy was more improvisational. It wasn't joke telling, it was characters. It was uh, Second City. In the case of Lorraine Newman, it was the Groundlings. And um, I had never seen this kind of comedy before and it blew me away. Uh, their ingenuity, uh, their quickness. And I got a little cold feet and um, I wanted to stay out of the line of fire because I didn't know if I can measure up. So there was a plant in the corner of Lorne Michaels' office that I went behind and squatted down. I hit, biggest day of my life, and I'm squatting behind the plant. 
literally, not figuratively. No, literally behind the plant. And uh, a couple of minutes into the meeting, um, I hear a girl's voice from the other side of the plant say, can you help me be a parakeet? Parted the leaves. I looked out. It was Gilda. And I went, what? And she said, yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I scrunched up my face and stood on a uh, perch and uh, spoke like a parakeet. But I need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say. Are you a good parakeet writer? And I, I had no idea what she was talking about. But I was just thrilled that somebody was talking to me. So I said, I'm a great parakeet writer. And um, she was as nervous as I was. It was also her first TV show. Uh, so she asked if she can join me behind the plant. And I scooched over and she came back there. And that's where I met my buddy Gilda. Oh, now she was to have a profound impact on your life. In the book, you say you spoke through her. Would you describe how you wrote together? We wrote so many different ways together. You know, yesterday would have been her 74th birthday. Aww. She's still with me, as is Gary Shandling, uh, some of the people, you know, anybody that we knew and we loved, uh, any of us um, are with us all the time. Um, as far as Gilda is concerned, there was something magical about the attraction that we made each other laugh. We brought out the silly in each other. I brought, she used to say that I would bring out the guy part of her and she would bring out the feminine part of me. And it just meshed. And the process varied. It was, um, we wrote on subways. We wrote uh, on the phone at night. She would come into my office with an idea and I'd sit there with a legal pad and I would just take down notes as she's just started blathering about God knows what. Mostly we wrote at uh, restaurants. We would mm -hmm. restaurant with legal pad and pen and um, I would ask her a question or I would suggest a character or she would tell me a character that she was thinking and I would just start writing. But it wasn't scripted writing. I let her just run off at the mouth and she mm. would go on and on and on and I would take down as many notes as I could with a pen, longhand. And, um, and I'd go back to the office afterwards and by myself and try to make sense of it. You know, I'd sift through all the pages and I'd try to edit it and give it form and embellish it with my own dialogue, my own suggestions. And uh, it would go back and forth like that. When she'd come in the next day, I'd give her the pages that I had done. And she'd really piss me off because she would have, after you know, she went out to Studio 54 or a party or God knows where, and I went back to the office and I'm up all night trying to write this. And she comes and fresh as a daisy the next day and takes out a, a red pen a red pencil, I should say, like a school mom, and just starts, you know, marking up my pages with arrows and crossouts and suggestions in the margins. And I'd get pissed off. And then I'd look at what she did and I go, oh my God, she's right. Oh yeah, well, I'll show her. So then I started editing her edits and it went back and forth like that all day until it finally went on the air at 11.30 that night. It wasn't always as frenetic as that. But if it was something that we wrote on show day when an audience was coming in, it was because there was a ticking clock and you had the pressure of going on live uh, at 11.30 that night. 
This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Alan Zweibel, one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live. In his memoir, Laugh Lines, Zweibel writes at length about his friendship with the comedian Gilda Ratner. Your romantic attraction to Gilda was unrequited. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it to be that funny. Oh, no, well, you know, it's very true, and I've made no bones about it. Yeah. That, but uh, how, how did that affect your writing together? Well, it, for me, it was sublimation. I was taking all the sexual tension <laughs> to get into the script, and she was more annoyed than anything. And uh, when I met my wife, Robin, on the show, and Robin was a production assistant, and when Robin and I started dating, Gilda was the biggest fan of that relationship because she loved Robin, thought Robin was great for me, and it also meant that I would leave her alone. <laughs> but it, it, it also speaks volumes about Robin that she understood your relationship with Gilda, and Robin became a very close friend of Gilda's as well. Well, you're absolutely right. Robin's birthday is June 24th. Gilda's birthday is June 28th. So they used to, we'd celebrate it together. Robin wanted Gilda to be the godmother of uh, our daughter, Sari, and, and, and that happened. And they became very, very close. And Robin is a real gem because when Gilda passed away, it was Robin who suggested that I write about Gilda and myself. And um, I resisted. I said, gee, I don't want to capitalize on that relationship. And Robin said, to hell with money. Your best friend died three years ago and you haven't cried yet. Mm. I, I wrote what became a book called Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner, a sort of love story. And it was cathartic. And it was revisiting everything I can remember about the relationship. And it, it was therapeutic in its own way. Uh, I wasn't going to uh, publish it. And then uh, people did urge me. You know, I showed it to Gary Shandling. I showed it to Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner and people who knew Gilda, people who knew me and Gilda. And they urged me to publish it, saying it was a nice tribute to her. And ultimately, I did. And then it became a play. And there's even talk of it coming back to New York as a play. And the reason I bring all of it up is that if my wife was up at two o'clock in the morning writing something about an old love that she had, I hoped that I would be as open-minded and as fair about it as opposed to jealous. Robin was the biggest fan of that relationship and really um, has helped to keep Gilda's memory alive, you know. I think you should hang on to Robin. Uh, you know something? We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. In no Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you. So we have three children, five grandchildren. So I, I think I'm pretty much in for the winter. <laughs> I get Good. Good. Yeah. Those characters that came out of your writing years at SNL became lasting influences on our popular culture. And phrases, expressions that entered our common language and, and are still with us. Why was 
your writing ideally suited to Weekend Update? Well, once again, my background was jokes. And Weekend Update was about jokes. First it was Chevy and then Jane Curtin uh, while I was there. Then Bill Murray became co-anchor. Dan Aykroyd was a co-anchor for a while. And it was cast members looking into the camera telling jokes about the news. Or Gilda or Belushi coming on and doing a feature, uh, whether it was a character that we created called Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, or uh, some of the other characters that other writers had created. This gave the um, actors an opportunity to look straight into camera just in one by themselves and, um, and speak. And if the character caught on, things that they said became catchphrases. I mean, look at Al Franken. Uh, so many years ago, Al Franken wrote a point counterpoint Dan Aykroyd and uh, Jane Curtin when they were co-anchors and the phrase, Jane, you ignorant slut, <laughs> became part of America's lexicon. You say that success snuck up on you all. The show won four Emmys, including yours in the category of Outstanding Writing for Comedy. And that was a watershed moment for everyone with the show. That was 1976. Two years later, there was a seismic event when the movie Animal House was released. What impact did that have on the show? When we first started the show, it was, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And we did that. The show wasn't the means to an end. It, it was the end. We were writing this TV show that was getting traction and people were embracing and it opened up a million doors for us. And God, it was uh, going to work every day. Uh, yeah, it was hard, but uh, it was fun. My experience of when John did uh, Animal House was the, the culture changed just a little bit because it now became evident, especially when covers of Newsweek magazine by himself None of the other cast members on either side of him, just him and a toga, that, uh, oh, oh, the show can get us movies. The show can get me my own TV show. So it's not that it became a means to an end, but we were aware or made more aware of the power of the show on individual careers. So I think it became a little bit more uh, competitive. It became a little bit more... Um, it's a little bit more tension, maybe writers uh, to get their sketches on the air, uh, actors to be in more sketches, uh, writers trying to uh, get certain actors in their sketches because they were popular or more popular and it gave your sketch a better chance of getting on the air. You know, uh, Hollywood um, started looking this way. There were... Um, movie executives that would come to the show or hang out in the studio and um, want, want to know who wrote this sketch that was being rehearsed or that sketch. So uh, the culture changed. Um, uh, there was a little bit of a loss of innocence. Yeah. But in your personal life, things were evolving beautifully. You and Robin were in love. Before you got engaged, you worried that she might not fully comprehend your work and its impact on your life together. Would you read 
the top of page 97. What I say beforehand is that Robin, working on the show, had a bird's eye view of what a writer's thought process, writing process, and general habits were. So she, there, there was a little bit of, um, you know, on-the-job training, uh, if you will, in, in terms of what it would be like to being married to somebody. And I had said to her prior to that, uh, I wanted her to read uh, something that Neil Simon had written for the New York Times, uh, the Arts and Leisure section one Sunday, where he described the comedy writer as a two-headed monster. Uh, one head goes through life, gets stuck in traffic, goes to the dentist, you know, pays bills and uh, lives. And then uh, at times, uh, without announcement or provocation, another head emerges and hovers over the first head and uh, passes comments on the life that the first head is living, satirizes it, makes fun of it, and that's what his writing is. So I wrote on top of page 97 still, I thought it was important for her to know what the future with her life partner would be, despite the fact that she'd witnessed and experienced it at the show, where the faraway looks took me, the reaching for a napkin to scribble something down in the middle of a serious conversation, me saying while driving a car, can you remember to tell me Hitler's tonsils when we get home? I I'll know what it means. So it was, um, it was about being here, but not being here. In those early days, and even to this very day, because I have a home office now, Robin will come in, let's say from Costco, with a thousand boxes and see me just sitting on a couch. And she asked me, asked me to help her. And I'll look at her and go, can't you see I'm wor working? <laughs> but <laughs> to the naked eye, it's a big guy just, you know, lounging. But um, the mind wanders. And uh, every writer that I know, in particular comedy, um, goes to those places. Okay, but to paraphrase Renee Zellweger in Jerry Maguire, you had me at Hitler's tonsils. Did you ever... <laughs> ever say that to her? Did you ever do anything with Hitler's tonsils? Um, no, I don't remember if I did anything with Hitler's tonsils, but, you know, if we go through all the napkins and all the things that I told her to please remind me because I was driving and I couldn't write anything down, uh, many, many times if I was in the middle of a script and all of a sudden it came to me, oh, I should have the character say this or a character do that, or if an idea for a, uh, oh, like a three-page article for the New Yorker came into my mind, I would say, can you write down, uh, I'll know what it means when we get home. So that has happened often. Emmy and Tony Award-winning writer Alan Zweibel will hear about his stellar career after Saturday Night Live in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's get back to my conversation with the award-winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel. His new memoir is Laugh Lines, My Life Making Funny People Funnier. Zweibel was one of the original writers Lauren Michaels hired for Saturday Night Live. What determined your decision to leave this show after five years? Well, Lauren was leaving and everybody was leaving with him because they asked me to come back to the new regime. My personal feeling was I've been to the top. Look at what we did. Look what I was lucky enough to be a part of. Opportunities were knocking for movies and my own TV shows. And uh, I wanted to start writing for the theater. Uh, I had gotten married to Robin and we got an apartment in New York City. What a launching pad uh, this has been. So I didn't go back to the show under the new regime. I um, started my career as a freelance writer. And in a way, it was a throwback to when it was before Saturday Night Live. And it was totally different and it was scary. I had a place to go every day for five years. I had a schedule that I was able to adhere to as grueling as it was. It was a show to put on so we knew where to be and when to be there. Now I'd wake up and Gilda would call and say, uh, now what do we do? And we had to figure out, okay, now what are we gonna do? And it was very much in the hands of other people who can call you and offer you work. You went on to work with Gary Shandling, blazing yet another path for innovative comedy and winning more accolades. And this signaled your family's move to L.A., which must have been an enormous adjustment for you as a quintessentially New York writer. Will you tell the story about your family's dinner? Yeah, sure. Uh, I had Robin and I had, Sari was born a couple of years later. And um, it was a culture shock. I got off on the fact of being a New York writer and liked the distinction of it and liked the kind of writing that New York writers had at the time. There was a grittiness to it. And the first night that we moved into the new house, the rented house in LA, <laughs> we got a taste of what it would be like to live in uh, Los Angeles, which is a company town. We went to a, a restaurant called Mateo's, which is in Westwood on Westwood Boulevard. And it was a hangout. The bar was a hangout for a lot of members uh, of the Rat Pack. You can walk in and you can see Dean Martin there or uh, Joey Bishop. We got a table, which was like right next to the bar, separated by the small little one of those short wall things that just divided the two rooms and we sat down and um, Lindsay was three years old and was sitting in a booth and she was being naughty. You know what I mean? She was kicking Adam. That's her, her older brother. And she wasn't listening. And, and I kept on saying, uh, Lindsay, you got to be a big girl. Lindsay, sit still. 
Lindsay, you, Lindsay, if you don't behave, I'm going to send you away from the table. And she kicked him or did something. And I said, okay, you leave the table and you don't come back until you know how to behave. I put my head down to eat the soup. And all of a sudden I hear a familiar voice of an older man go, this girl tells me you're giving her a hard time. And I look up and it's Frank Sinatra <laughs> holding Lindsay's hand. Lindsay had obviously wandered over to the bar, which was just on the other side of this half wall. And I don't know Frank Sinatra. And I just look at him and I go, Mrs. Sinatra, let me tell you my side of the story. <laughs> I and I it. tell him what I just told you about her misbehaving. And then finally he says to her, is, uh, is that true? And she sheepishly uh, just nods her head. And he says, uh, say you're sorry. And Lindsay apologized. And uh, Frank Sinatra says to Lindsay, you know, join your family and I want you to behave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he walked away. That was our first night <laughs> in Los Angeles. What an indoctrination that was. I would say it was an initiation. Yeah. Well, more great friendships were in store for you and Robin in L.A. Would you talk about the invitation to work at Castle Rock? Well, like I said, uh, Rob Reiner had hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. Uh, we stayed friends. And when I was uh, doing its Gary Shandling show, uh, Rob came and he was a guest on one of the episodes. And about that time, some partners of his had formed a uh, their own production company called Castle Rock. And he said, why don't you come when this show is over and uh, we'll give you a deal. You'll come join us. And um, ultimately, I did. Ultimately, I did. Billy Crystal was there, my old pal from uh, the Catch a Rising Star days. You know, they, they did The Princess Bride. They did um, uh, When Harry Met Sally, you know, the City Slickers. My friend Larry David was... Um, creating this show called uh, Seinfeld and uh, it was which ultimately was a Castle Rock production and Larry David and Billy Crystal and I shared a suite. Now you got to figure what are the odds of that? Three guys who started out if this is 1992ish and we all started out 1974ish so it's almost 20 years later that the three of us should be sharing a suite in Rob Reiner's company it was it, the the good fortune, uh, di uh, you know, was not lost on us. And we spoke about it uh, uh, often, and we were very, very grateful for it. And um, I got to work with Rob. Um, I had written a couple of movies for Castle Rock that he directed, did a number of uh, TV pilots there, and my time there was magical. They, they just let you... Try to do your best work. Christopher Guest did some of his great early movies at Castle Rock. So it was a haven where, because it was a company run by creative people. It wasn't suits. Mm -hmm. Executives who uh, wanted to be in show business and, um, and that wasn't their strong suit. It was having a, um, a group of collaborators being your bosses, if you will. And um, so it added the synergy of whatever we were doing. You mentioned writing with Billy Crystal for his Broadway show, 700 Sundays. What a gorgeous tribute he 
has for you in the book about the trust he felt in in your friendship and in your talent to put words into his family's lives that would be talked about on stage. That responsibility never left my uh, conscious mind all during the time that we were uh, writing and in rehearsal and when it was already on its feet. You know, when I was doing a book tour, when the show was now up and running and going, it went on tour after Broadway and uh, whatever city I was in, after having, I, I think the, I had written this novel uh, called The Other Showman, which won the uh, Thurber Prize. It was, it was a lot of heat on it. And I went on this monstrous book tour to many, many cities. But when I'd get back to the hotel afterwards, after speaking to whatever group about the book or do whatever TV show about it, um, I would, uh, write Billy jokes and email it to him just to keep him on his toes so he doesn't have to say the same things every night. There were little pockets in the script that, that lent itself to topical stuff. So if something that was topical um, uh, that I had a joke about, I would send it to him. And I was always, so my dedication to it and him was profound. Look, you just said it, it was, um, it was his family. And um, he trusted me with them. And these were people for the most part, yes, I know his brothers, but I didn't know his parents. And I didn't know his grandparents and aunts and uncles. He, and they were so near and dear to them. And I was respectful of that. Now, the fact that I come from a Long Island Jewish family, just like he does, you know, these weren't foreigners to me. These were very familiar characters. So it put me in touch with my own past and my own family. And so I embraced it and I treated it with the same respect and love. Mm, beautiful. The collaborative effort continues with your subsequent project with Billy Crystal, a film yet to be released. Is it complete? Yes, it is. It's complete. I think, you know, we finished shooting in November the picture is totally locked. Um, I think ex with the exception possibly of one music cue, and they might have already done that, it was going to be released in the fall. And um, now there are no movie theaters. So it, it was going to be at the uh, Cannes Film Festival, and that got canceled. I've seen the movie play in front of uh, audiences, you know, test audiences while we the, the the post-production process was still going on. In particular, one audience in Pasadena, California, and the audience laughed and cried and did everything we wanted them to do when we were writing the script. So I think in a perfect world, this is the kind of movie you want to see with an audience because there's the communal experience of laughing and crying and going on that emotional roller coaster together. Mm. Instead, not knowing what the future of theaters and who knows, maybe we'll find a home on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. That decision will be made, you know, by the producer, a man named Fred Bernstein. Tiffany Haddish and Billy are amazing together. It's a relationship that is uh, uh, adorable and infectious and um, makes you uh, cry at the end. I can't wait to see it. Alan, is this the life you ultimately would have written for yourself? 
What a wonderful question. What a great question that is. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I have everything and oh. I'm not wanting, you know, I wake up every morning at 5.30, I still write. People still seem to wanna read what I've written. We have three children, five grandchildren. I would be a fool, a fool to complain. And I, as boring as that may sound, you know, the English have this expression when you say, uh, how you doing? And the, the other guy will answer, not bad considering the odds. Well, considering the odds, what else could I possibly want in this life? So, yeah, had I written the script myself as, you know, as a young boy watching the Dick Van Dyke show, <laughs> saying what I would want the future to be for me, I, I don't know what the differences would be. This has been a blessed journey. It's been fun. I look at it and I go, you, you, you did good. You, you were lucky. You, uh, um, it, it worked out. This book is absolutely a delight to read. I, I think your humility is m matched only by your humor. Alan Swibel, congratulations on a fantastic career, and thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was my honor. I love talking with you, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Emmy and Tony Award-winning writer Alan Zweibel. His new memoir, Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, is out now. The audio version of the book will be available on July 21st. We've heard a lot about Saturday Night Live this hour. That brought to mind a visit from one of the longest-running stars of this show, actor and comedian Tim Meadows, spent 10 years on SNL. He stopped by while in Atlanta performing at Dad's Garage last summer. Here, he explains the origins of his outrageously funny character, The Ladies' Man. So we sort of just kind of came up with the backstory that he had the radio station and the uh, show and he lost it and that he also had a, a lot of women and their husbands or boyfriends were fed up with these affairs that he was having and they were coming for him. Mm. So we tried to have that. And then we tried to also just make it silly, too. The good part. Yeah, it was good. I mean, uh, Andrew Steele wrote this really funny dance number for the men, for Will Ferrell and the guys that wanted to kill Ladies' Man. And it comes from out of nowhere. And it's like a Bugsby Berkeley musical, mm -hmm. sort of like, and that's, you don't see that in SNL movies or whatever. And the character, he also had to be likable. Oh, he's very likable. But he's despicable in his behavior. Yeah, which makes me wonder with the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. is bringing back the ladies' man impossible to resurrect? I mean, that's not going to happen now. I, I don't know. I think the character is likable enough that you sort of forgive him for his stupidity. <laughs> uh, and Lauren gave me a really nice compliment. This is Lauren, Lauren Michaels. Yeah, Lauren Michaels. He said the character is despicable, but you, Tim Meadows, you're very likable. Speaking of SNL, 
Adam Sandler came back to host SNL, and he performed a tribute to the memory of Chris Farley. Mm -hmm. Let's hear a clip. The last big hang we had was at Timmy Meadows' wedding party. We laughed all night long, all because of Farley. But a few months later, the party came to an end. We flew out to Madison to bury our friend. Nothing was harder than saying goodbye, except watching Chris's father have his turn to cry. What was your reaction when you heard this song? Um, the first time I heard it, we uh, I was opening for Sandler with a bunch of other comedians, Spade, David Spade, Rob Schneider, uh, Norm MacDonald. And Sandler told me about this song, and I hadn't heard it. And then I get choked up. Wow. Uh, then I heard it, and it was just, you know, to me it just seemed really a perfect example of uh, what Chris was like. Because mm. uh, he was really funny. He was he cared for people. And if you were his friend, you were his best friend. So everybody felt like they were his best friend. Actor and comedian Tim Meadows. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Emory University professors of film and media studies, Nasinga Burton and Deonza Rogers. They'll discuss their own list of movies that resonate especially now during Black Lives Matter. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. And check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now 
Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.